0: Would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 47? We're going to pick up where we were. When Rob stopped reading, I changed his reading, and so I got a good case of the giggles as he had to (laughs) wind his way through the names. I should always look carefully at what I asked people to read at the last minute. But you did a good job. Congratulations. (laughs) I particularly like those two. Which ones were they? Yeah, I won't pronounce them, but (laughs) M-U-P-P-I-M and H-U-P-P-I-M. I I think sometimes maybe the the TV people have gotten their names from the book of Genesis. Okay, Genesis chapter 47, beginning with verse 28. We pick up the story. I'm going to read through... The end of chapter 48. Genesis 47, beginning with verse 28. Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight... Place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. And so he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. It's very interesting that uh, some of you know that in Past decades, there's been a theory about the Old Testament that says that the Old Testament and particularly the Pentateuch have been put together by a series of different authors, and that uh, you can trace uh, these different authors as you read through the text. And this happens to be right at this point one of those places where. these scholars say that you can clearly see that the Bible's written by a number of different people, not Moses, as the Bible itself testifies the Pentateuch is written by, but rather uh, Jay and, and other people with names like that. They just, they're letters that stand for a certain emphasis. And so they say here that between chapter 47 and 48, we obviously move over to a different author because we now go back and tell the story again. Um, I mention that because they say this is the best place to see how clear it is that there are different authors of Scripture. And uh, if you clean windows for a living, you're kind of in some way happy when the windows get dirty. Because then when you clean the windows, you can feel like you're doing something. When you cut grass for a living, and I've done both of these for a living, you're very demoralized when you hit a drought. And you go over the grass, and the only way you know you've cut it is because you can see the wheel marks in the grass. So you're kind of happy when it rains. It clogs up the chute sometimes. But if you study the Bible for a living, sometimes you need to come up with theories in order to feel like you've earned your keep. But I think as you read this text, it's, it's very clear. We don't need to come up with an author different than what Scripture itself says. wrote. If, if it says Moses did it, the fact that you have a story told from one perspective and then the next chapter tells it from a different perspective doesn't prove to us that what the Bible says about itself isn't true. Do you understand? It might make an interesting article for a scholarly journal. But if you just look and keep reading, you can see, okay, we're going to go back now and tell the story from a different perspective because now there's another job that needs to be done. All right. So I just say that because this, they say, is the best place that absolutely proves that there are two different authors. And had I not said that, it would never have occurred to any of you except those of you who have been studying in the Religious Studies Department that we're now switching authors, and we're not because it's actually still Moses. Okay. Chapter 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after... You, for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's sons, and he's sort of adopting them and saying, they're going to get an inheritance just as if they were my own sons, Reuben and Simeon. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. The older you get, if you're a family man or a woman, isn't it sweet how God allows us to see our grandchildren? Uh, we, we take this for granted when we're young, but what a privilege. Here, uh, Jacob is just overwhelmed at the goodness of God that he, he got his son, his favorite son, restored to him. And he even gets to see his, his grandchildren. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Yeah, I wish my dad was still alive so that I could bow with my face to the ground in front of my father. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand, toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And by the way, that's the first occurrence in Scripture of God being referred to as the Good Shepherd. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil... Bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said... I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And uh, Alexander McLaren is a name I've probably not mentioned to you before. He is a great uh, expositor of Scripture, and he has just a tremendous page and a half of comments on this little scene here. I don't get to give them to you today because it's not the subject of our sermon, but I commend to you Alexander McLaren. Um, if you buy his sets of uh, books on Scripture and read them as you read Scripture, it will be a great help to you. But isn't it sweet to see here this, uh, this discipline, and you'll see this often in Scripture where God disciplines us from thinking that everything is, just flows from nature. And so if you're the oldest son, no question about it. You have the superior blessing. And yet consistently in Scripture, we see people like the younger brother and people like Zacchaeus. And God takes them and like completely demonstrates that it's his grace that works. And it's not nature. Now, it's not that he doesn't use nature. But he, he he flips things. He shows us here on earth what will be true in heaven, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so here you have the younger brother, and that should be an encouragement to Taylor and to all of you who have older brothers who seem to be superior in everything, that God uses the person he wants to use. And no matter what your gifts are, how bright you are, how you appear to be the person that's maybe, uh, you know, the prince, the golden child, that God might well demonstrate his glory by making all of your potential never pan out. You know? And then if you're the one that never quite measured up, God might make you, and then what will happen is, like Paul says, it'll be clear that everything he does, he does through his power, and he doesn't need a one of us. So that should be an encouragement. Now to our actual text for the sermon. We have here the life of Joseph. We've been studying it for a number of weeks. And there have been many places in Joseph's life uh, where we know as we listen to his story that Joseph was flesh and blood just like us. We started the story by studying the hatred in the home of Joseph. Uh, People despised him. his brothers were uh, sick of him. Uh, they couldn't stand the preferential treatment that he got from his dad. You know, uh, his special clothing, his special uh, treatment. And they couldn't stand Joseph coming to them and telling them they had dreams where they all bowed down to him. And even his father had had it with Joseph. And so Joseph has a normal home. There are tensions, sometimes bitterness, envy. Hatred, clearly hatred. In fact, his brothers decided, let's kill him. And it was only because of a set of circumstances that, that instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. That shows how nasty the, the climate of that home was. Um, yeah, It's nothing new. And then we look at Joseph. He's sold into slavery. And then we see the sexual temptation that everybody deals with in life. Um the temptation to use God's gift of sexuality in a way other than the way God has commanded, which is clear in the Garden of Eden that God made a man and a woman to live together in unity, uh, in love, uh, permanently, and to have children, to be fruitful and multiply. And Joseph was tempted to uh, have sex with his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, And we saw Joseph dealing with that hatred in the home, sexual temptation. He was thrown in prison. He knew what it was to be fired unfairly. Uh, Many of you have, at one time or another, lost a job. Uh, Not because you didn't work hard and not because uh, you were insubordinate even though they might have accused you of that, but rather because you were, in fact, a good worker and you refused to be dishonest and you refused to slow down and you refused to do the things that you were told to do. But Joseph had this, too. He got fired, and he didn't just get fired and have to look for another job, but he he went into prison. And after he went into prison, Joseph knew what it was to be betrayed by people that he had helped. Many of you have had people into your home and loved them and cared for them. And then you've had those same people that you've loved and cared for Kiss you off, you know. They take advantage of you. They show absolutely no gratitude. Well, Joseph helped uh, the two servants of Pharaoh in the prison and asked them to remember him, and they forgot him. And so Joseph languished because of the unkindness of somebody that he had helped. And then Joseph had this wacko promotion. Where, out of nowhere, he's out of prison, and he's risen up to the level of the number two in the kingdom, Pharaoh's uh, vice regent, his number two man. And so, this is Joseph's life, and it can look like every part of it is is more intense than anything you've gone through. Probably your, your brothers haven't plotted to actually kill you. Although, I don't know, there might be one or two of us. I don't know, every time I went over to the Crumb household, I always saw them trying to shoot each other in the backyard, so... <laughs> Who knows, maybe. (laughs) So here's Joseph. And now Joseph is coming to that moment that all of us go through, some before we even know it, (coughs) when we're still little children, some even as babies, when we lose our father. Some we lose him as adults. Joseph is losing him as an adult. And so now we're not gathered around all the other circumstances, but now we're gathered around this specific circumstance. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Which is the deathbed of Joseph's father, Jacob. And it's a very, very tender moment. Jacob, we see, has adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's commanded that they inherit equally with the rest of his sons. What a sweet thing for a father to do. To take these two sons and to say, you know something, I love you so much, I'm going to take your two sons and they're going to inherit just like the rest of my sons. What a kindness. How warm uh, and at the same time unworthy Joseph must have felt. Now, what is the final scene here? Well, let's read together verses 21 and 22. It says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Thank you, dear brother. (coughs) I don't know what happens to my voice. It seems, thank you. It seems like it's every Sunday. Excuse me. He says, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. This is the legacy that Jacob gives to his descendants and specifically to this son, Joseph. I want to look at this legacy for a few minutes. Um, What is a legacy? We don't use that term. Uh, We say inheritance, Um, the the stuff that you get from your parents, right? And if I were to tell you this morning that we'd be studying our inheritance and you had known that that would be the subject, automatically your minds would go to the things that every will tells you to make sure that you write down, namely what? If you have children, you gotta write down what happens to the kids if you die because obviously that's your greatest treasure. But then after your children, the whole rest of all those legal forms that you fill out have to do with what? Stuff. (laughs) Crud. Or money. Investments, pension plans, life insurance policies, uh, couches, Chests of drawers, cars, titles to cars, all that crud. And so that's how we think of a legacy. We think of it in terms of money and possessions. And uh, it's very interesting as we study the legacy of Jacob that he passes on to his sons, and specifically to Joseph, that even the crud that he passes on has to do with God and not his own treasures. Um, So I want us to spend a little while studying this legacy, this inheritance, this treasure that he passes on. First, what are the circumstances that are surrounding this treasure, this legacy? And second, what is the content of the legacy? And third, I want us to spend a couple of minutes talking about what legacy we're going to leave for our own kids. Now, first, what are the circumstances that surrounded Jacob as he died and passed on his treasure to his family? If you'll stop and think about it for a second, you'll realize that the circumstances are unbelievably good. It's never easy to lose a father. But if you have to lose him, this is the circumstance you want. You don't want to lose a father when you're too young to have known him. You don't want to lose a father when your father is overseas fighting and just sending you letters. You don't want to lose a father before he has the opportunity of meeting your children. You don't want to lose a father because of him going to jail. You don't want to lose a father in any of those circumstances at the age of 30, 35, or 40. You want to lose a father when he's 140 years old and when he has had a chance to meet your children, and particularly when he's had a chance to see that you are, in fact, as successful as your dreams said you would be. I mean, if you think about it, he got a chance to see that these wacko son that had these wacko dreams, they actually came true, you know? The brothers did bow down to Joseph. And so um, this is a good circumstance. It's not just good in terms of a ripe old age, in terms of seeing the fulfillment of Joseph's gifts, but it's also good financially. You're going to lose a father. It's good to lose him at a time when the family is not on the edge of starvation. All right? And there was absolutely no financial burden on this family. Why do you remember that when Jacob and his family came into Egypt, do you remember what Pharaoh said to them? Pharaoh said, the whole kingdom is yours. Whatever you need. And so they had clothing and carts and animals and pasture land and anything they needed, they had it poured on them. They weren't given uh, the sandy loam soil and the rocky ground uh, of northern Wisconsin. They were given the deep, thick, black soil of Iowa. The best land that Egypt had, they were given, the land of Goshen. So their crops, their clothing, their housing, and the protection of the greatest empire in the world at the time, they had a sponsor, if you will, who was the right hand. It was like Dick Cheney's family, you know. <laughs> Don't worry about them. You know, I just read that one of his daughters has a position high up in the State Department. I thought, no surprise there. Don't worry about the Cheney family, they'll be all right. You see, this is Joseph, and this is Joseph's father. By virtue of being the number two in command, the whole world is in front of them. And so the circumstances uh, are really as good as they can be. The only thing you'd wish. Is that you'd wish that, that Jacob's wife would be able to be there sharing the moment. But on the other hand, it was a kindness to her that she went first. Um, something that is our parents' age, we think a lot about. So here is Jacob. And you watch him giving a legacy to his son, giving the treasures that he has to his son. And you ask yourself, uh, you know, isn't this man a little bit weird? He's acting like he's a potentate. You know, he has delusions of grandeur. (laughs) Why would he think he could give anything to his son? I mean, think about this. If you were there and your son was the number two in command over the wealthiest kingdom in the world, what would you do? Would you start telling him and putting hands on everybody? And, you know, and people would look at you and say, What's this about? You know? What's this guy doing? Doesn't he realize that he should ask Joseph to put his hand on him? So here is Jacob acting as if he actually has something to bequeath. All right? And he doesn't. But Joseph is a good son. He goes along with the charade. You know? He goes ahead and lets his dad act as if he has something to bequeath, and he lets him pass it on. In fact, it's very interesting. Joseph doesn't just allow him to do it, but when his father takes the blessing to his sons, Joseph thinks something's going on because he's not pleased with the switching of the hands. Did you notice that? Well, about the only way we can understand this scene in a sensible way, given the circumstances surrounding this death, is if we look at this as a moment of sentimentality and melodrama. How sweet of this dear old man Jacob to make such a touching moment of his death by giving to his sons the only treasures he is still able to control, spiritual treasures from some other world. Now listen, that's how you think about this. Don't lie to me. The way we really think about this is proven very clearly if you go home and get your safety deposit key and you go to your lockbox and you open it up and you take out your will. And then you compare that will to any will written in the 1600s by anybody living in New England. Because the truth is your will, I'll bet, says absolutely nothing about spiritual Bequests and spiritual gifts and spiritual inheritances. It's very interesting. On my computer, I have the last will and testament of somebody that the Taylors think is one of their great, 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 great grandfathers or something like that. So it's hundreds of years old. And you know what that is? That's all about God. And, you know, the whole thing just goes through and gives commandment, exhortation, commandment, exhortation, commandment, exhortation to the descendants. Now, you're to do this, and you're to do this, and you are to honor God in this way, and you are to make sure that God is pleased in this, and you are never to do this, on and on and on and on. And so the center of that family, when that father died, was God. And I doubt that any of them fought over their inheritance (laughs) because it was an exhortation. It was a sermon from a patriarch to his family. And you know, that's still read today in that family. The only reason that Jacob looks weird to us is that there's obviously nothing in terms of money that he can give his family. But if we... If we switch our way of thinking, and if we realize that Jacob, his real treasure, is the covenant that God has made with his fathers and with him, then all of a sudden, the whole thing gets flipped up on end. Okay? You with me? And you begin to see that this man, who really was... Completely poverty stricken in the wealthiest empire of the world whose son had access and had just brought to his superior every bit of wealth of the whole land. Did you notice that? He kept working until Pharaoh had everything in the land. All right, That this son had things that were treasures far beyond anything he had control over and that was the covenant with God. And so the reason... That Jacob was going through this ritual at the end of his life was not to make him feel somewhat powerful in in the face of the extreme power of his son and his son's boss, Pharaoh. But it was because Pharaoh himself was poverty-stricken. He had nothing. Because it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment And God had not made a covenant with Pharaoh. So, even though the wealthiest empire of the world, all of its citizens had just been coerced by the famine into giving every bit of their possessions to Pharaoh. And now they were reduced to a feudal existence, F E U D A L, feudal, all right, that it didn't matter because Pharaoh really had nothing. And when he died, he would stand before the living God without the righteousness of Christ. So those are the circumstances surrounding the blessing, the bequest, the legacy that Jacob is giving to Joseph. Now, what exactly is the content of this legacy or blessing? Well, it's two things. Number one, God's presence. And number two, God's promise of the return to the promised land. Look at the text with me, please. It's the second half of verse 21. I'm about to die, but what? God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Two aspects. God will be with you and he'll bring you back to the land of your fathers. Now let me ask at this point, what? Um, It's an obvious question, but we really ought to think about it. Are these the blessings that you have waited for from the hand of your father? Have you waited for your father to say to you, God will be with you and he will bring you into the promised land? Well, a father dies, and for most of us, a gaping hole is left in our lives. We will miss our dad in many ways and many memories will be kept in our minds and hearts, but we can't get away from the loss. You can't cover it up. To lose a godly mother or a godly father is to lose a tower of strength. And as the years go by, you feel that loss and that absence to a lesser degree. But for those of us whose fathers and mothers are still alive, it's very comforting that they're alive. <clears throat> well, here we look at this poignant moment where Jacob is about to go. Everybody knows it. And it's very, very sweet how Jacob realizes what this loss will mean for his son, Joseph. <clears throat> and he doesn't say, I'll be looking at you from up above. But he says, God will be with you. And you know, there is no comfort that can be greater than this comfort for a son who has lost a beloved father. He says, I am about to die, but God will be with you. The Word of God in Psalm 27.10 says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And in Psalm 68.5 it says, A father of the fatherless is God in his holy habitation. And so those of us who have lost fathers and are now fatherless have scripture's promise that God is our father. And when you think about all the things that your father did right, not the things he did wrong, then you need to remember that God says that when we lose our fathers, he will pick those things up, that he will continue to care for us as a godly father cares for his sons and daughters. And this is the promise that Jacob gives Joseph, that God will be his father, that God will be with him. And it's a precious promise for all of those who love God that God will be close to us, that he'll stay closer to us than even a father or a brother could. And then there is a second part of the legacy he leads, Joseph, and that is not only will God be present with him, but in the future, God, he says to Joseph, will take you back to the land of your fathers. Now, at this point, we might ask why it is that Jacob gives a blessing like this to Joseph, because again, Joseph and his brothers already live in a land of abundance. They don't need to go back to another land. Why go to another land when they have the land of Goshen? They have the thick soil, the rich soil, their their crops are doing well. Um, well, actually, their crops aren't doing well yet. Um, actually, yes, their crops are doing well now. But everything that that nation represents, that would be like saying uh, back in the early 90s, um, you know, well, it might not be the same, but think of a place around the world where you wouldn't exactly want to live compared to the United States. And some guy's dying and he says, don't worry, God will take you back too. And I, I won't say I won't say a place so that I don't offend any of you. But any place, let's say Tijuana, you know. <laughs> you live in San Diego and your father says, don't worry, God will take you back to Tijuana. You know might be a great place to live, but not if you live in San Diego, right? So here they are, and they're promised that they will go back to this land that they escaped from because this land was not caring for them and it had no wealth and it had no crops. Now, it's interesting, if you'll turn to the end of the book of Genesis and look with me, chapter 50, verse 24. There we have the death of Joseph. And look at what it says there. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, verse 24 of chapter 50, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Like father, like son. So when Joseph is dying, Joseph gives to his ancestors precisely the same legacy. God will be with them, and what? God will take them out of this land of abundance. Now, what's the meaning of this? Well, although we are assured that God is with those of us who love him and follow him now here on earth, Every child of God longs for the day when sickness, when pain, when death, and when sin will be over, and they will be over when we enter the promised land. Did you notice? Um, look in your bulletins at the hymn we're marching to. Design. Did you notice this? Some of us are compulsive footnote readers. <laughs> And did you notice the footnote there? See the asterisk at the very bottom? Very tiny type. Psalm 2.6, by extension, this refers to the New Jerusalem. So we're marching to Zion. Well, Zion was the mountain. Mount Zion, right? And so what we're being told here at the bottom of this is that we shouldn't just think of some mountain over in the Holy Land when we're singing this song. What's the point of being joyful about marching to Zion? right it's like marching to everest i thought people died at everest you know i don't want to go i'm too big <laughs> you know so what's the point well the point is that zion stands for the promised land and you know that the promised land stands for heaven you know that anytime you read the account of the israelites wandering in the wilderness and god tells them to go into the promised land they say oh no there're giants in the land you know that what you're supposed to understand is that when I call you to live a life for Jesus Christ and to obey his word, even though all of the world tells you you're a fool for doing it, and you say, I can't, you know, I can't, I, I, I have to, I can't, I, you're giants in the land. It's an issue of faith. God has promised the land to you. And either you go in or you're going to spend your life in the wilderness until you die and then your children are going to go in. The one thing certain is you will inherit that promised land, either yourself or your children. Now, it will be your children if you don't have faith. Do you understand this? So every time you read the account of the Israelites in the wilderness, every time you see the patriarch saying, God will give you the land, and then you see Moses come and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, that they can go to the land, and then the people are wandering in the wilderness, and they're going to the land, and then they come to the edge, and they say they're giants in the land, and then there's 40 years of punishment, they all die out, and then they go back to the land, and then one of them sins, and so they begin to not be able to go into the land, and then they repent, and then they go into the land. Okay, This is supposed to always drive our brains to think about our promised land. The Sabbath that yet remains. All of these images that are used in Scripture to drive our brains to what? To heaven. We are supposed to care about our promised land, and that's heaven. Very interesting that we have had a class for a number of weeks now on heaven taught. I'm told by my uh most trusted advisor, my wife, that it's an excellent class. But the average attendance in that class is what? Eight people. Eight of you. Eight. Heaven ain't real big, is it? Not many of us are real interested in heaven, are we? Now you say, oh, that's unfair, Tim. Just because there are eight people in that class doesn't mean we don't care about heaven. And I say, bunk. It does indicate that we don't care about heaven. Uh we spent a long time in the elders meeting this last week talking about the great difficulty of having any objective criteria that you use in the church to measure whether we're doing well or poorly and i think eight people in a class on heaven is an indication we're doing poorly now why is it that we don't care about heaven you say well it doesn't mean we don't care about heaven because eight people are only eight people are in that class they say okay fine um, does your will have anything to say about heaven in it? In your will, does it say and if you and if you have faith in Jesus and did it does it say anything about I look forward to meeting you in heaven? Do you say this to your descendants in your will and you say, "Well, just because my will doesn't say it doesn't mean okay, okay, fine. I'll give you the class numbers and I'll give you your will." What about when you had a deathbed scene with your family? Was there any mention about heaven? I mean, I'm there a lot when people die, you know. You know why you don't believe in heaven? Because you think you have it here on earth. Many of you have never gone more than a day or two in your lives without being filled with food. You've never had to wonder whether your water would kill you, as in refugee camps. You've had cars to drive you to family reunions at Thanksgiving and Christmas and the summer vacations. You have telephones at a moment's will. You can have a friend even if you live alone. Your clothing never wears out because by the time it wears out, you're sick of it. You've already gotten new clothes. Remember where the Bible says uh, you think you need nothing. You're rich, you're fat. You need nothing. There are times where in our lives we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to set up a system that we can fail at. Do you understand? We need to set up an accountability scheme where if we fail, it will be very clear. Do you understand this? If somebody plays golf and they four-putt every single hole, that's failure. If you claim to love Jesus and you have nothing in heaven... None of your attention, none of your writing in your will, no going to a class, no books on your shelves. And worship, the only part of worship that makes any sense to you is the preaching of the word. The the, the music stuff, you know, uh, and, and all the preliminaries. Let's get to the point, the point that I can be cerebral about. You know, all of these things are an indication of a lack of appreciation for heaven because this is what we'll do in heaven, we will spend forever praising God. So here's the question. If you don't like my saying that the number of people in a class and what's said in your will and, and your attitude towards uh, music and worship, if you don't like me using these things as the evidences of your heart and your commitment to heaven, then what objective thing would you point to in your life that does show you love heaven? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you have given any money to the poor that nobody has known about? Okay? Okay? This is something that's really hit me lately. I think that if I give money to my church that pays my salary, I've done my job. That's disgusting. My daughter, Michael, is vastly superior to me in caring for needy people. That's, that's awful. So where's your treasure? Where's your money? Do you have any money that will be in heaven waiting for you because you've been like the dishonest steward? You've been solving it away? Not, not modeling after his dishonesty, but after his wisdom in making sure that when he gets to heaven, there will be people there to greet him. Okay? What about uh, the least of these? Do you go around saying they're the least of these and they're not deserving? And so Jesus says, depart. Because I was hungry and I was naked and I was thirsty and you had nothing for me. Or are you the kind of person that goes around and says, Lord, when did I see you? And he says, I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was sick, I was depressed and you took care of me. Who have you talked to this last week, not because they're so interesting, but because they're very uninteresting, but depressed and they need your friendship? Just, come on, name any of you. Don't do it, but have any of you talked to anybody this last week as a service to Jesus Christ? Anybody. Who have you given money to who is poor? Who have you visited who is lonely? Okay, again, the point is what? The point is Jacob had the wealth of Egypt surrounding his family and he disciplined them to remembering that Egypt wasn't the goal but the promised land was the goal. Do you understand this? So I am disciplining you and saying your goal is heaven. Your goal is not a bigger pension plan in the United States of America, and our nation taking care of everybody so our pension plans can't be hurt because the price of oil goes too high. you get my point? There has to be some objective measurement in your life that you love heaven and that you know this world is not your home. You're just traveling through. Okay, so where is it? And about this point, you're saying, well, okay, you made the point. Move on. You're harassing us now. Okay, but I hope you'll go home and I hope you'll examine this issue and find out whether or not you have your treasures in heaven or on earth. And I hope that if you're a father or a mother, you'll begin now to plan your funeral service, and your last will and testament, and I hope you will bless your children, and I hope when you do all those things, you will actually say something about heaven. Do you understand why I'm saying this? I believe that the way we handle our money, and the words that we speak, and the places we go, and the friends we keep, and the people we have over to our homes for dinner all indicate whether our treasure is on earth or in heaven. And I believe it because Jesus said it. He said, when you have people over, don't have people over that can have you back. Because that's a waste. He says, have people over who can never pay you back. You see, Jesus is disciplining us to have our treasure in heaven. It's interesting. Once you can begin to see in the Old Testament that the promised land stands for heaven. And that this is why the people love it. Because the promised land is the place of God's presence. Okay, It's where they live in the presence of God. Remember Clapton's song, Eric Clapton? I finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. Okay? What could be said better than that in the presence of the Lord? And this is why, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 137, when they went into captivity, even though they were in wealthy nations, even though at times, like Daniel, they were lifted up again, just like Joseph, to the right hand of the emperor. They had all the wealth of the land, all the influence. They had everything this world could give. Their hearts mourned for the promised land. And this is the meaning of this lament, this sorrowful cry when they're in captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors' mirth sang, Sing us one of the songs of your homeland, the promise. Sing us one of the songs of your God. <laughs> How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now, you know how I keep telling you the promised land is heaven, right? But I'm wrong. Because the promised land isn't just heaven. The promised land is what? It's the church. The church for you is what Jerusalem and Zion were to the Jew. Do you understand this? This is Zion. And so really, your love for the body of believers, the assembly of worship, the instruction of the word, prayer, the Lord's table, everything that you feel about this church is a demonstration also of whether your treasure is in heaven. And look at the tears when they are taken out of Zion and the promised land. You know, it's very interesting that at the end of his life, our Lord, Jesus Christ, (coughs) gave this exact legacy to his beloved family Do you understand where I'm headed? That at the end of his life, what did he give as a bequest, as an inheritance to his disciples? He gave, number one, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of the truth. So in other words, number one, he said, don't worry, I'm leaving, but God will be with you. I will give you the Holy Spirit, and He will dwell with you. And then number two, He said what? Same chapter, John 14, He said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where, what? I am there you may be also. So, Jacob did it, Joseph did it, Jesus did it. Where's your treasure? And what have you spent your life doing? And this is the final thing I want to say to you. I am afraid that many of you have spent your lives working to leave your children an inheritance of wealth or of a good education. And I want to tell you with all the authority of God, I'm not God, but I say this with God as my authority. If you have given your children a good education and a degree and wealth and a house and have not given them the knowledge of the word of God and hearts which are on pilgrimage to heaven, and you know what I mean by that. If you have allowed them to love basketball and football And the flute and the piano. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have taught them that it's okay to depart from the church for the sake of sports and music. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have taught them that it's more important that they learn to stick out a tough job than it is that they learn to stick out tough discipline spiritually. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? if you have been more disciplined in training your children to be academic succeeders, if you've been more disciplined in training them to protect their wealth and to earn a good income than you have to train them to know the Word of God and to have a heart that is in heaven, then you have given your children nothing but a mess of porridge. It's corrupt. It's going to die, and at the judgment seat of God, you will be found to be an unfaithful father and mother. Do you understand that? If you can't picture yourself at the end of your life saying, Son, here's my last will and testament. God will be with you, and he will bring you to the promised land. If you can't picture saying that, you are an unfaithful father and mother. Do you understand me? So now ask yourself, is that what you've given your children? And you think, oh, this is, this is too much. Look, <laughs> those of you who know me well, you know, if God can help me to see my need to do this with my children, don't worry about yourself. He can easily help you. Okay? I was out in California. Remember all that? Just one more 1970s idiot flake out in California. And God grabbed me and he said, you're going to be a good father. And I was like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. And he said, you're going to have a contented wife. And I laughed. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. And he said, you're going to have little children around the table. And <laughs> And then he said, and you're going to see your children's children. He gave me these specific promises in Psalm 127 and 128. And everything he said, he has fulfilled. And he gave me a wife who disciplines me to be a good father and a husband. She teaches me to be a man. Okay? So don't give up. Don't give up. If you've been a bad dad... Start over again and ask God to make you in a good dead so that when you die, you can see the same sort of beautiful scene that you see here with Jacob and his son. When I was in Wisconsin, I had the privilege of seeing Josie Dykstra die. Josie stood about 6'2, and she was one Christian woman. I will never remember when she had me into her house one day and and told me that I needed to preach a sermon on Hosea before the next time we had communion. I'm going, whoa, (laughs) really, Josie? (laughs) She was in her 90s, and yes, she felt that we were all taking communion for granted and that we needed to be under the discipline of the book of of Hosea before we took communion again. Josie had a brother named Sam, and Sam stood 6667. And Sam had a wife that had a stroke, and she went in the nursing home. And they were in their 80s, I think, when this happened. It happened right before I moved to town, became Sam's pastor. And the people in the community told me that they could set their clocks by Sam, driving every morning over to the nursing home to be with his wife. And then when he got there, you know what he did? Every single morning, he brushed her hair. This is Sam. And Josie and Sam were brother and sister, and they were godly. And I happened I had the privilege of being in Josie's bedroom as she died. And they kept her home, which I recommend if you can do it. My brother also had this privilege. If you can stay home to die, stay home. You don't want a bunch of people in white coats interfering with the soul work that you need to do as you die. Sometimes you can't do that, but if you can, stay home. So Josie was lying in bed, and Sam and the whole family were gathered around, and I we sang Rock of Ages and a bunch of these old hymns, all from memory. And then Sam had to go, because it was getting dark, and he couldn't drive anymore when it got dark. He drove a little Omni Horizon. This huge hulk of a man would like, get down in this car. And as he he went over and he kissed her, and then he backed up, and he said... To Josie, and Sam was a typical Dutchman, few words. (laughs) Few words, all right? And he looked at Josie and he said to her, I'll see you there. I'll see you there. And that was one of the most that was one of the most precious moments I've had as a pastor. You knew that Sam and Josie had their hearts on pilgrimage and they were in heaven. You know, another way I knew, when I went to visit Sam in his home, he had this huge print Bible. It was like this thick. It was huge. And you say, well, what does that tell you? It tells me nothing, because many of you have Bibles. What What it did tell me, though, is when I looked at it, the sides of the pages were filthy. Does your Bible have dirty pages? Sam's now with Josie.